Sounds like you guys already had too much coffee, but that's all right. Well, uh, I wasn't going to do this, but uh, apparently my wife caused quite a stir this week. I hear Facebook is actually dying, but not completely, because uh, she put, changed her status to be living in, in Hawaii. <laughs> she's not there yet. It's just mentally she's there, but um, we're not there yet. So really quickly, uh, just some of the the boring details. Last Saturday, we moved out, uh, but we're not homeless, thanks to the graciousness of a daughter and son-in-law who are putting up with this for the month. And uh, let's see, that was Sunday. On Monday, we sent off our shipping container. It's now in Seattle on its way to various islands. And um, Tuesday, we closed on our house. And uh, Wednesday, we got a lot of money, and uh, so that was the good part. (laughs) And um, so Melanie will leave uh, for the islands uh, the 27th, I think it is, and uh, I will leave on the 31st. So that's kind of an update. A lot of people came up to me last night like, are you leaving after this service? And they were all panicked. So we got lots of time. I'm pretending there's lots of time left, Um, but we know how a month goes. Let me ask you a question, though, as we uh, get started here today. When you complete a task, who gets the credit? Maybe you have graduated recently or you were hired, you got a promotion Maybe uh, you get married or you teach a class or you help someone or you find success in business or ministry or finance. Did you do well or was that God? Who gets the credit? For example, when someone uh, finishes up, oh, I don't know, like 23 years uh, as a pastor, we can look back and we can definitely point to lots of mistakes and failures and some half-baked ideas. And we know who's to blame for all of that, but hopefully there was some good stuff in there. Who gets the credit for the good stuff? Now, we're in church, so the answer is pretty easy, right? You can fill in the blanks on your notes on this one. Uh, God gets all the glory, right? But do we believe that? For example, if you, uh, if you paid all the tuition, or maybe someone paid all the tuition, and, and you got up early and you attended the classes and you wrote all the papers and, and uh, you passed the tests, why at the end of that would we then say when you have done so much that God gets all the credit? Does that seem, does it sound strange to your ears? Do we understand what it means if we say that God gets all the glory. And if it's true, do we even like the idea? Does it seem fair to us? Our study in the life of Moses is going to have us wrestling with some of these questions today. I'm not going to promise to answer them all, but I am going to get you started thinking about them at the very least. Our setting is Exodus 33. Last weekend, if you were here, uh, we heard a message about Moses, of course, and uh, he had said to God, I I want to see your glorious presence. Show me your glorious presence. And and God agreed, and he said, you come up on Mount Sinai, present yourself to me there on the mountain. And though that was kind of a tricky thing, we'll look a little bit more about that in a few minutes. It was it was tough to do. He experienced that, and Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights hearing instructions for the, for the nation of Israel, for the Hebrews, about how they were to relate to God. And he was in God's glorious presence that entire time. But the 40 days passed, and it was time to come down off the mountain. And that's where our story picks up today. Let's pray, though, as we uh, dive in. 
Father, we uh, thank you that we get to be here and we get to open your word. It is a privilege. It's a joy to be together and to look to you. And, and though uh, we're not Moses and, and we're not climbing up Mount Sinai today, nevertheless, we believe that uh, we're in your presence and that this moment is holy as well and that you desire to reveal yourself to us as well in this hour. And we want to see your glory and experience your glorious presence and learn more about who you are. We pray you would uh, lead us in this way today and that your spirit would have the place in our hearts and our minds today that would be good for us, that you desire for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Moses comes down off the mountain and he comes down with some glory on. We're going to take uh, this passage today, divide it into two pieces, and with the first half of the story, we find that Moses is wearing the glory of God. We learn as well that while he has this glowing face, and it sounds a little bit bizarre, and probably it was, it's not as strange as we might think that in fact we're going to learn that perhaps we should be even more like Moses than Moses was like Moses in a particular way. Our story uh, begins in uh, chapter 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. So Moses wasn't even, didn't even know this, but he's, you know, he's glowing because he's been in God's presence for 40 days and 40 nights. And this is the effect of being so close to God. The glory got to him. His face was radiant. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. It was freaking them out. I don't know if you've probably never seen someone glowing like Moses was glowing. They were scared. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. And afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. So Moses comes down. He's glowing. People are scared. He reassures them, and then he enters into this time. He, he presents a message which was phenomenal. Here's a message direct from God. This wasn't some pastor in his office all week trying to figure out what to say. This is Moses. He comes down off the mountain. He's like, here's what God said to me. Wow. That's a message you want to pay attention to. Not that you shouldn't pay attention right now as well, but <clears throat> I would like to have heard it. He reassures them and he teaches them. Now, there's a lot happening in this story. We could look at the law and the process that's going on and coming down the mountain, all these kinds of things. But our focus is on glory. And so I want to take a little detour for a few minutes here and look at glory. It's a, it's a uh, complex and abstract concept. There are lots of different references to glory in the scriptures, and they're not always precisely the same thing. They're related, but they're, they're sometimes a little different nuance. And so I want to kind of cover what glory is. Here's the first foundational definition of glory. Glory is one's most excellent feature. It's your best thing. Someone's glory is their best thing. And that's true of, of anyone, anybody's best thing. For instance, countries can have a best thing. In the Bible, uh, the country of Lebanon was known its best thing. Its glory were its forests. And so its, its, its trees 
where it's glory. You couldn't get cedar better than you could get from, from Lebanon. Nebuchadnezzar said, my glory is my palace. My, the, my best thing I've ever done is my own home, which, okay. His palaces were fabulous. He said, it's my glory. And, and any ordinary person, all of us can have a best thing, a glory. And what I love about this proverb, Proverbs 19.11, I wish we could spend a half hour on it because this is an amazing concept. But basically we have God saying through this proverb that, that here it's to one's glory. It, it's like the best thing you can do is to overlook an offense. Now we don't have time to focus on that, but you should do that sometime. God says, if you want to impress me, when I look out at someone, it's not the, the great business success they have or the great accomplishments in life. I look at someone and I see that someone forgives another person and I think, wow, you, know, you can't really do better than that. Look at, what, look at what happened right there. That person forgave that person. And to overlook an offense is to your glory. Now, your best thing, it's not exclusive to God, but it's most easily applied to God, of course. Exodus 15, Moses and the people, they've passed through the Red Sea and they're, they're singing this. We sang this earlier. I'm not going to sing it now. You can thank me afterwards. And who among you, it says, see there, who among you, the God, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, Working wonders. Three aspects. He, he divides God into threes here. And right in the middle is awesome in glory. Now glory is, is like the adjective among God's characteristics. It's not so much a thing in itself. It's a way of taking all the sum total of, of who God is. His best things. And saying they're, they're amazing. They're great. They're magnificent. Now what's God's best thing? Everything. Everything. You know, and whatever you, you're looking at, and, you know, we can't comprehend him all at once, so we kind of put him into pieces. He's love, he's justice, he's all these different things. They're all his best thing. And so they're so great that we, we use glory to kind of summarize the, the, the magnitude, the quantity, and the quality of who God is. It's a way of expressing all of this on a grand scale, that he's awesome in glory. And then he also says here, uh, Moses says, that he's majestic in holiness. In other words, he's, he's glory is a sum total, but we can look at his character and his, de his deeds. In his character, he's majestic in holiness. His character or his being, not just some holiness, but he's absolutely pure. He's thorough in his integrity, in his consistency, in his wholeness. It's perfect. It's glorious. It's great. And he works wonders. His, his deeds are glorious as well. They are great as well. And when we look at the scriptures and, and what God does, his actions, we tend to find two categories. His creative acts and his redemptive acts get a lot of focus on glory. In Revelation chapter 4, we are, we are given a, a, an image into the worship in the throne room of God. And in Revelation 4, we hear this song, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. His creative acts are glorious. They're great. They're magnificent. And in Revelation 5, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. His redemptive acts cause him to, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. 
his moral being and his deeds are on such a high order that we speak of them, their quality or their, their characteristic as a characteristic of its own, the glory of God, the supreme excellence or magnificence of God. He's glorious. So there's the, the, the base, the foundational definition of glory, but we go on because there are other uses. Glory is also an outstanding reputation. Best qualities stand out. They tend to be recognized by others. If we asked some of your friends or your family and we said, what's their best thing? They, they probably know what that is. Mentioned Lebanon er, earlier. Their, their trees were magnificent. They were glorious. It was the glory of Lebanon. And, and that was a reputation that was known. And so that wood was sought after in the ancient world. It is true with uh, God as well. In Psalm 79, it says, help us, God our Savior, interesting verse, help us for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. I love what the uh, author says here. I sense my sin, and so I appeal to God. Would you forgive me? It would be to the glory of your name if you would forgive me. Sounds a little manipulative, but um, probably okay in that salvation or forgiving sin was God's idea to begin with. In fact, he planned that before anyone had even sinned. Before he had even created us, he had a plan to forgive us. So I think the, the writer here in Psalm 79 is okay. Sounds a little self-serving, but it's God's idea. But having done so, having done what's in his nature, which is to save and forgive us, our salvation then produces greater recognition of God's gracious nature. It produces a greater reputation, and that's more glory to God. In Psalm uh, 72, we read this, Praise be to his glorious name, his reputation forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. We have a lot of songs that, that uh, use that concept. We understand, contrast this part of what glory is to the first part, and we understand we're not adding to God's glory. His glory already fills the earth, and we we looked at that last week. David mentioned about how his creation is infused with his greatness. The question is, will we pay attention to it? Will God have a reputation among us for his glory? We need to pay attention to that. And that's the, the prayer, the, the desire of this verse, is that it would be recognized by the people of the earth that God is glorious. Here's a third definition, and that is a physical manifestation. Apparently, when, when God's glory is really intersects with our world in a, in a powerful way, though He's present everywhere, it produces light, or it's experienced as light. His glory is experienced as light. Fire or, or radiating light or the glowing face of Moses, for example. Exodus 24, 17 said to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. So understand that it probably wasn't fire. It's the glory of the Lord that appears like fire. Or maybe God's glory does start a fire, but you understand that the, the fire or the appearance, that's not the glory. Even the light isn't the glory. The glory is the greatness of God. But in the presence of the greatness of God, sort of unshielded, it comes across as light to human beings. Where am I here? Let, next verse, Psalm 34, 
4 and 5. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those, to, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. And so here uh, the, the psalmist picks up this idea that the closer you get to God, the more you understand what he's done to you, the more likely it is to show up on your face, even to the extent of Moses' glowing face. We use that concept a little bit in a, in a very simple sort of embryonic form. We'll go to a wedding and we'll say the bride and the groom, were, were, they were beaming. Their faces were beaming. We haven't seen them like that before. Or a, a new mother comes to church for the first time with one of those tiny little human beings. You know those little things that you just can't hardly believe that's a person? And, and we say of, of mom, she's, just, she's glowing, she's beaming today. That's, that's it. That's, that's kind of it. That's the start of it. But now instead of like a, a human experience of, of a birth or a wedding... Blow that up. Multiply that infinitely by the greatness of the glory of God. And we have now actual light beaming from Moses' face. And perhaps from ours. Fourth definition is glory is celebrating magnificence. Now, this is where we take a a, a thing, a noun, and we turn it into a verb. We do something with it. That happens in language all the time. For example, Google. Google's a noun. It's a thing. It's a tech company. We love to get mad at it, you know, write angry posts about what they do and control and that kind of stuff. And yet we're using it all the time. So much is so prevalent in our life. We turn that noun into a verb, which isn't really true, and we say, I'm going to go home and and Google glory. Or uh, Bob, he's a, he's a noun. He's a, he's a person. He's a guy with red shoes, right? But he's so important and he has such a reputation here at Gateway that I could, I could turn him into a verb. I could, I could uh, try to present a, uh, some really great Bible teaching to you, throw in two cat jokes and a ball joke, and... And I would be able to say, I bobbed it. (laughs) You bobbed that message. We do that with glory. Isaiah 24. In the east, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel in the islands of the sea. Understand, we're not literally giving, first definition, the substance of glory, the the greatness. We're not adding to God's greatness. We're not literally giving God the glory, the stuff of glory. But we are recognizing His glory. When we say that we're going to give God glory, we're recognizing that He is glorious. And we are expanding, in some sense, that definition, appropriately, uh, of reputation. We're saying he has that reputation in our lives that he is great, that he is glorious. And that's appropriate to do. And we celebrate it. And that's basically worship. So Moses, he experiences, we kind of package all of these definitions, all of this understanding of glory. Moses enters into God's glorious presence. He experiences and he begins to understand he is taught In fact, God speaks to Moses 
the truths of how great he is. He experiences the greatness of the glory of God, and it's clearly evident. And that glory, that experience, makes him want to worship. Remember at the end of the passage last week, Moses falls flat on his face in the presence of God, and he wants to worship. He wants to glorify God. He wants to recognize that God is glory. <laughs> glorious, excuse me. And so great is that glory that it manifests itself as light, and it sticks to Moses' face, or it bounces off of it, if you will. It reflects off of it. Which then, as he comes down off the mountain with this glowing face and this experience of glory, it impacts others. And I have to believe it it expanded the reputation of the greatness of God among the people as they were first scared, and then they hear this message from Moses (laughs) with a glowing face. Here's what God said. And the people had to say, okay, I believe you got that from God. I've never seen this before. I should have got a suntan this week or something. Now I'm totally lost. What does, all very interesting about glory, but what does Moses' shining face have to do with you and me? Actually, quite a lot. Paul gives us a lesson in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and he bases it, he, he launches off of our story with Moses. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 says, The old way, with laws etched in stone, led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Paul is going to talk about the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law. In fact, the things that Moses was teaching the people about how they were to relate to God. This is what we're going to do in terms of our loving and serving God. And the process of doing that was glorious. We see that in Exodus, and Paul admits it here. It was a glorious thing. Because anytime God reveals something about himself, that comes with a sense of glory. Because we're hearing about the great God. But the end result, he points out, was death. A consciousness of sin, but no means of resolving sin. Therefore, death. He continues, verse 8. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way, which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way, which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? Paul gives us an argument. Roughly summarized this way. The old covenant that Moses delivered came with glory. You could see it on his face. But the new covenant is so much greater. Shouldn't we expect to experience in life in the new covenant to have even more glory? Doesn't that follow? This is his argument. And he gives us several evidences of how the new covenant is, is greater. So the old covenant came written on stone, engraved in stone. But the new covenant is written on our hearts. And how much more important to God is the heart than the letter written in stone? 
The, the, the uh, old covenant was delivered by Moses. Now, Moses was pretty big stuff, but come on, what's the comparison? The Holy Spirit. Moses is pretty big, but sorry. Sorry, Moses. We got a Holy Spirit delivering the new covenant. Now, the, the old covenant brought a consciousness of sin, but it didn't help anyone overcome that. No one will be made righteous by the law, but only by the Spirit. And so the result is greater. I mean, which would you choose? Would you choose an agreement with God that led to condemnation? Or how about righteousness? Any takers <laughs> down here? Or would you rather have the righteousness of the Son of God? The result is greater. And then the, the old covenant was temporary. Jesus has fulfilled the law, but the new covenant is eternal. We will always relate to God in his presence forever into eternity based on the terms of the new covenant, which was completely dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. That never goes away. Never. You'll never be out from under your need for the Lord Jesus. That's always there. So Moses' face is beaming as he brings the old covenant. Appropriately so. This was a message from God. But shouldn't we expect life in the new covenant to be even more glorious? Paul's saying, yes, we should. And in verse 12, he says, therefore, since we have such a hope of, of greater glory, we're very bold. What are we bold to do? For that, we need the second half of the story. With glory on and veils off. Bold to do away with veils. In the second half of the story, we find Moses wearing this veil covering up God's glory that was reflecting off his face. And we're going to learn about ourselves that, that we don't need veils. In fact, I think Paul would argue that we should work to get rid of the concept of veils in our life to the glory of God. Now, God's presence is tricky. We saw this last week. You know, Moses wanted to enter into God's presence, and God had to warn him, well, actually, if we looked face-to-face, -face, you'd be dead. So you still want to go for that? And, and we could see that with Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. You can read that sometime. Isaiah is brought into the presence of God and the throne room of God, and his, the, his first reaction is, I'm dead. I've seen God. But a provision is made for sin. See, we cannot stand before God. We're not prepared for it. So, you know, Moses had to be protected, and it was this very shielded experience of God's glory. Direct exposure to his glory is a powerful thing. And even the reflected glory off Moses' face was intimidating. To manage that, Moses is going to use veils. Here we go. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. And then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So what we have is a summary, not only of Moses' experience on the mountain, but into the years of the future as they wander around the desert and they have the tabernacle. And Moses would occasionally go in to meet with God and hear further instructions from him in the, in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. And this is sort of an uh, encapsulation of that process. He would go in without the veil. So we see three different wardrobes here, if you will, for, for Moses. First one is veil off, no glory. 
No veil, no glory, just Moses, just that Charlton Heston-like face going into me with God. He's got to. He just has to look like me. Entering into God's presence to receive instruction. No veil because it would be meaningless. It would be somewhere between meaningless and, and, and insulting to wear a veil before God. Because you can only appear before God exactly as you are. Because that's exactly what he sees. There is nothing else except who you really are before God. It works with us around here. You can be different things and you can convince us of different stuff. In God's presence, you just are who you are. Period. So Moses goes in. No veil, no glory. Then when he comes out, he has, again, still no veil, but now he's got glory on because he's been meeting with God. And he delivers, again, instructions to the people, and Moses has been inside. He met with God. They gather around. He presents this new information or direction or instructions, parts of the law uh, of how they're to relate to God under the old covenant. And, of course, it's important to listen to that and important to, you know, put that into your life. And it's powerful because, well, the glowing face thing. And then when he finishes with that, he puts... Now, here's the really interesting part. He puts a veil on, and behind the veil, the glory is fading. Oh, I wish we knew more. I wish we knew more. I'll, you know, for the most part, we can, we can speculate. It's fun to think about this. What was going on that Moses wanted a veil on? Now, the first thought, of course, is that people were a little scared of this, and he still is trying to live among them. And so, you know, maybe just putting a veil on lets him just kind of be a regular guy. It, the, it's, it's, a, it's a profound honor to attempt to teach the Word of God. But when I'm done here, I just want lunch, maybe a nap with my grandson. I, you know, I really do. I need to be kind of a regular guy the rest of the day. I hope that doesn't disappoint you, but that's kind of what I'd like to be. Right, Gary? Like when you're done, <sighs> maybe that's going on for Moses. You know, I still, I still want to just like help you with your herds and water your sheep and get you some new tent stakes and all that. Like, just like, I don't know, maybe that's going on. What's going on? But we know he's hiding the fade. And here Paul tells us a little bit about what's going on. Back in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. The glory would fade a little bit. Don't know how fast, but it was fading. And it prevented them from seeing that. That fading glory proved something. It proved that the glory wasn't his. He only got it from God. Now, Moses is great. He is one of the greatest leaders of the people of God of all time and will always be known that way. We can't diminish that. But Moses is only great because he's connected very closely and intimately to God, who is great and glorious. That's it. Without God... He's a murderer, a failure, a washed-up half-prince of Egypt, probably in prison or executed. He's great because of his connection to a great God. 
So he puts a veil over his face. Was he embarrassed? I don't know. Was he prideful? Probably not. We're told he was very humble. Did he want to control just a little bit, just a little bit what people thought of him? Like, I kind of like this image that I, that I have this beaming face and that I speak authoritative words from God. So now that I'm done, I'll put the veil over. And you'll just keep thinking about that image, not the everyday image. It's hard to know. We don't know the motives, but we have Paul telling us that's what he was hiding. Now, we're not sure of his motives, but we are pretty sure about veils because we use them too. Veils are things we use to to manage life in a fallen world. A fallen world and yet being people who desire to be something and to be better than we are and to be something important or accomplished, and yet we fail so much. And veils we use to cover that up. Here is the reality. Paul says we are not like Moses, or at least we don't need to be. But here was the reality. There was the great God, and there was Moses. And that is the reality for all of us. God is glorious, and we are not. God is great, and I am not. That's it. That's the sum total. That is the reality. But we're not always comfortable with that. We would like it to be a little different, and we use veils, all kinds of different things. Like, like I don't like this, so I get into a little bit of boasting. I'd like you to think of me actually maybe here instead of here. This is so harsh. I don't like living down here. Maybe I could brag a little bit. Or the, the one that always boggles my mind, name dropping, as though, you see, because we're all here. This is all of us. There, there is no here. This is an illusion. This is a veil. But, you know, I, I name drop as though if I know other people who are down here, that puts me up here. I don't get that. Like if I could say, hey, I've, I've met every living president or every Grammy winner for the last 15 years. I was going to name some, except I don't know any, so... They'd all be from the 70s, and that would be embarrassing. You know, we're all here, so I I named you. I pretend that I know important people who also are down here. That's it. No glory. God is glorious. Or we conform to society in, in order to gain acceptance from other people who are down here with no glory. Or popularity. We cover up our failures and our struggles, or we, we reassign blame. Well, I'm here, but it's someone else's fault, so actually I'm here. That doesn't make sense. Veils are a problem. Veils are a big problem. Paul talks about it. He says the people around Moses, the people of Israel, their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Veils mask us from the glory of God. Here's the glory of God, and here we are, but we put on a veil to pretend something other than the reality. And that's a problem. It's an illusion that the distance is not so great. It's an illusion that we are better than we are. 
It's not real. And he says the, the reading of Moses, the reading of the things he actually brought down from the mountain is a problem because the old covenant was a two-way covenant. God would do some things and people would do some things. So that's an agreement destined to fail. If a relationship with God partly depends on you, you are in trouble. You're in trouble because you will fail. That's just the reality. And so it's, it's this veil. The old covenant was a performance agreement. And when we're trying to live with God in some sense of earning something or performing for him, we don't measure up. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can't match the glory of God. That's not possible. The Old Covenant doesn't prepare anyone to be in God's presence. It only helps us understand why we can't be there. That's all it does. But, he says, Christ removes the veil. Because now we understand that this doesn't have to be the problem. It feels like it is. Yes, God is glorious, and we have all fallen short of that glory. But there's a way. Christ removes the veil, that, that need to pretend. We can now be honest about who we are. It's not that we are proud of our sin and our failures. We're just merely free to be honest about who we are. This is who I am, but my God is glorious. And that's, that's the only formula the ex that exists in the world that is real and true and honest, that has taken off all the veils. That's the only thing you can see. That's all there is. Where am I? Let's go on. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And, and we all who with unveiled faces, we don't need veils, contemplate the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There is a freedom from veils. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend this stuff. We don't have to make up this stuff that we're up somewhere where we are not. There's no no delusion. The gospel equation is that any glory you see in me is God's, period. That's it. Do you see something good? Have you been blessed? That's the glory of God, not me. Because here's the real equation. We're set free from needing veils. We're done hiding. Paul says, that's why we're bold. Not because we're something, but because we're nothing, but we have the glory of God in us. It's transformation. Moses' face shined temporarily and the effect wore off because it was the old covenant. The glory of the new covenant brings permanent change, transformation into his image. We have this desire for, for meaning and accomplishment. We would love to be better than we are. But here, I guess, is the, the bottom line thought for me today in our passages. My best thing and your best thing 
my glory and your glory will always be what God does in you than God does in me. You will never find a better way, a better accomplishment, a better reputation than the glory of God in you. It doesn't get any better. There is no famous person, no great accomplished person who has even a sniff of glory compared to that. If you belong to Jesus, if you've tasted his forgiveness, if you bear his righteousness, you are as glorious as a person gets. Because it's the glory of God in there. But it can only be seen if we take our veils off. If we let people know the real truth and the real formula. What matters is that people see Jesus in us, not us. I thought that... uh, Actually, uh, an entirely different passage was, was the appropriate uh, final words for today. It's 1 Corinthians uh, 28, 31. God chose the, the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. Sorry, that's us. Because that's all he saves. He only saves the despised things and the things that are not, the things that have no glory. If there is someone who thinks they have some glory, they're out, they, they aren't reachable because they're in a place that isn't true. I don't mean unreachable by God, but in that condition, until we realize this is the reality. To nullify the things that are, that would be the, the, the assumption, the, the veil that assumes, no, I'm something. Nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one bo- let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. When you do something good, when there's some sense of accomplishment or achievement, who gets the credit? To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this passage that challenges us and, and it, uh, it, it strips us down and, and bears our soul and, and then you build us up. Because truly we are nothing without you, but with the Lord Jesus Christ, we experience glories. We look into his face and we have the opportunity to to taste your best things every day. And they become the best things in us, your glory. Father, help us to uh, live that life, to walk each day tasting that, experiencing that, gazing into that face, not the face of Moses, but the face of Jesus, so that we might actually have your glory in us and to rely on it and depend on it and and to uh, revel in it, to be built up by it from this day and into eternity where we will always, always be for the praise of your glory.
why don't we stand and worship together?